Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another edition of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. And we like to do that in a world of sports and music and business and comedy and testimonies, books, authors, pastors, the like. And today we get to do that with Dustin Nickerson, comedian extraordinaire. We'll get into a few things until I really dug in and thought about it. I thought, man, our worlds have have some similarities in there. And right now he's probably ready to rebuke that statement and say, Jeff, I don't want associated with you like that. So please leave that alone. But welcome, Dustin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm glad we can finally make this work. I know there's been some back and forth and reschedulings and stuff. So thanks for your persistence. And uh, like I said, it's it's 9 a.m. here on the West Coast and comedy hours, which is, I think, about 3 a.m. for most people. So I should kick in about 30 minutes into this 45 minute episode. I should I should get funny. <laughs> you will. I, I think 9 a.m. for a comedian will give us a lot of humor that we'll have a lot of fun with. What time do you what time do you usually go to bed? Like what's a typical work night? When are you hitting a sack? There's no really typical, unfortunately, because it depends if I have uh, if I'm working or not. And if there's one show or two shows or honestly, it depends what coast I'm on. So that's the main issue is there is no typical. I mean, I will go to bed anywhere on i mean this is not an exaggeration on a given week 11 the earliest two to three you know on the late side and then i'll get up if it's like a normal weekday school day like most parents i'm getting up like you know in the uh, actually i'm probably later than a lot of parents i'm getting around like 7 7 15 but if i'm on the coasts um like if i'm like in the east coast this last week like in dc and i just stayed i'll sleep till noon one or i'll get up at 3 a.m to catch a flight so there's no that's the whole problem Super yeah, there's zero regularity to wow. my sleep that's, so. yeah i can't imagine i think we all think you guys have such a dream life but i think travel body food that kind of thing with sleep and just erraticness it's got to be way crazier than anybody realizes yeah, but it's it, it it's not. It's like it is sure, but like any comedian that tells you their job is hard needs to stop doing comedy. Like you that any comedian who thinks their job is hard is pathetic. <laughs> like, get a life. That that me, all that means to, to me is that they've never had a real job. <laughs> like like I understand that like yeah, like travel's hard like oh and then did you get laid over and you had to go <laughs> hang out in the Delta lounge for 2 hours? Yeah. Oh, oh baby. And then you had to go check into your hotel and then you had to go do actual work for 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, it's so tough. <laughs> Like, even the idea that traveling is hard, like, I know that it is a little, but, like, it's essentially like an adult high chair where you just sit in and then someone brings <laughs> you snacks and a drink and the rich ones are up in first class anyway. It's it's really, I didn't, I had a day job until I was 32 years old. And I didn't even start comedy until I was 27. 
comedy is not hard and anybody who tells you otherwise is pretty full of it in my opinion so let me ask you one of my favorite 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 i'm hoping you've seen it one of my favorite comedy bits is tim hawkins doing the worst have you seen that bit where he talks about the high school girl who gets dropped off at the mall I don't think so. No, I mean Tim has like nine specials, so it's it's hard to know all his material. Yeah, yeah, so, I don't I don't know this one. So this is probably a lot of people I think would say one of his best bits, where he's talking about this girl that gets dropped off at the mall by her mom, and her friends aren't there yet, and it's like fifteen minutes later she calls her mom. My friends aren't here, and the mom's like, "Oh, that's the worst." that's the worst. And, and then Tim's like, yeah, that's, that is the worst. Like those Ecuadorian miners, when they were yeah, fighting yeah. to stay alive, they said, yeah. you know, this is really, really, really bad. But yeah. what would be worse is if you're like a high school girl and you're waiting for your friends at the mall and they're like 10 minutes late, this is really bad, but that's <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I a hundred percent agree with that sentiment. And I think that like comedians, Oftentimes, if you if you have a job that you care about, like a job that you want to have, then you need to stop complaining about your job because the majority of people do not get to have a job they care about. They do not have a, get yeah. to have a job they're passionate about, a job that they want to see them like uh, where they care about their work, yep. you know, and they uh, that brings them any amount of joy. I try to keep that mindset while I'm out. And yeah, of course, there's a lack of sleep and stuff, but th that's not unique to comedians. Sure. Lots of people travel for work and lots of people have jobs that are stressful and don't, yeah. you know, they don't sleep particularly well. So I don't know. Tell some single mom driving for Uber while our kids are at school to scrape rent together yeah. that you're like, well, I had my layover. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. I've heard you. It's funny you mentioned about the hate and job. They I've heard let me, they wouldn't let me check into the hotel early. <laughs> Give me a break, man. Give me a freaking break. Anyways, go ahead. I've heard the stat that supposedly 80% of people hate their job. Yeah, I, I, I that's and what's the stat too? Like it's like 80, 90% of people have like uh, less than like $5,000 in their account too. Like I just, you know, comedian, a lot of comedian complaints are first world complaints. Yeah. I'm, I'm very pro comedy. I'm glad it exists in the world and I'm very pro comedian, but maybe it's, I think it's probably because I had a lot of day jobs and because I, uh, I have kids and like, just, I'm spending my time. I don't live in LA. I don't live in New York. I don't live in a, in an entertainment city. I spend the majority of my hours with like real human beings, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that I think I, I, I think I have a, 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 a more accurate perspective of how hard our jobs sure. really are. Well, you love in what you do. So you uh, have the podcast with your wife. Don't make me come back there. You've got the mm -hmm. book that came out probably what a year ago, how to be married. That was about a year how ago. To to, how to be married to Melissa mm -hmm. is, uh, it was the name of the book. It came out. Yeah. Two Junes ago. Yeah. Okay. The you tour, you're pretty regular on the touring circuit. We're, we're promoting that you will be in Cincinnati at the Liberty funny bone, December 10th. Mm -hmm. You're going to be December 13th. I'll be there in Columbus at the Easton funny bone. Then you're going to be in Pittsburgh for a few days, December 14th to 16th. Hopefully we've got lots of Pittsburgh listeners, maybe, maybe none. I have no idea how many, but, uh, and then February 16th, you're back even closer in Dayton at Southbrook church. So thinking about all that you do, what, what is your favorite part of what you get to do of all those things? Oh, I mean the stage. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, do you mean like specific type of gigs? Well, yeah. I mean, just what you do. I mean, you're writing, you're doing a podcast oh, with your yeah. wife, you've written a book. I mean, what, what part of being up on a stage is the best thing that you have the mic and you control the room or what's the best part of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's very cliche, but like getting, getting laughs, man, feels great. We've all made people laugh here and there at a party and school, whatever it may be, you've gotten a laugh. It's an unbelievable feeling. And that's my job is to get laughs and I've gotten fairly good at it and just keep getting better at it. That's the nice thing is it becomes like a muscle that's like pretty finely tuned where you're like, Oh, I can make this group of people laugh real quick. And uh, we do like a, I like to do a thing with, Mel, or if I'm in an elevator with uh, a couple people, or and like some strangers walk in, I'll be like, "How many laughs can I get in ten floors?" You know, like <laughs> you do that with like, Mel. You, you do it with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'll do it while she's in there, but I'll do it to the strangers. Okay, so, like can I make these strangers? Like it's uh, it's still getting laughs. But I will say, like during the pandemic, I switched to doing the pod. We were like a guest pod, uh, where we had guests on all the time. But now we, uh, it's just me and Mel. And it's my favorite. I love it so much because I, I think Mel is Mel's the funniest person in the world to me. Mm. I find her like very she like tickles me. She's very charming to me. And she's gotten like I mean, we're, you know, probably 50 to probably 100 episodes in with her. She's gotten really good and funny and relaxed on it. And so, yeah, I look forward to sitting down and recording those every Tuesday with her. That's super cool. I love I love your energy about it. It just feels very genuine that you love her humor the way you do. It's not like it's the good husband thing to say or something like that. No, I actually so much so that I, I had wondered if it was just me. I was like, does everyone else think Mel's as funny as I do? Maybe it's just me. And but people are not now people are coming up to me after shows and be like, where's Mel? And I was like, all right. I mean, I'm a comedian here. Let's not get carried yeah. away. <laughs> do you feel, do you feel a risk with that? Like I know when I've seen uh, uh, Nate Bargatze several times, you know, his dad's out there with him. And I'm like, his dad's pretty funny. <laughs> like, what if people are like, oh, hey, we mean, don't want Nate. We yeah. want his dad. I mean, he's not just pretty funny. He's out there doing magic. He's funny. I mean, he's a performer for a long time. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever. You know, Mel doesn't have any interest in stage. Stage funny is a different yeah. thing. It's really more about presentation than it is like how actually funny you are. So there's a lot, there's a lot of like very funny people in people's work offices and, you know, fantasy football leagues and whatever it may be. There's sure. a lot of funny people in there. Stage funny is an entirely different thing altogether. It's like being good at Madden and being good at actual baseball. Yeah. Like there's a, they're very different type yeah. thing. They look similar. Yeah. And I can see why people might think that there's a translation, but there is not. Because I'll, a step further, a lot of stand-up, very funny stand-up comedians are not funny off stage. Mm. <laughs> like, it's just, they're, they're very, very different things. Yeah. We're going to get into you being a Seattle sports fan. I told you, I almost wore my Seattle Seahawks jersey of one Sean Alexander. There you go, Alabama's finest. Well, yeah, what does that do for your heart when I say the name Sean Alexander? Sean is like, uh, Sean, like I know him. Sean Alexander had like, he's kind of got an interesting lore with Seattle in that he was so good. He was so dominant. He was an MVP. And then when we lost Hutchinson, our left guard, he kind of fell out. And everyone was like, oh, wait, was he a little overrated? Because Mm. it was actually our offensive line that was so good. And so there was a little of that kind of like talk like that was a little bit of the demise of that team when they started getting rid of their offensive linemen but then i think he's uh, I, I think everyone just is uh he's somehow he's like 
He might be the most underappreciated league MVP mm. in history. Wow. People do not talk about Sean Alexander like he wasn't having five touchdowns and a half, you know, five touchdowns and a half. So, I, it's, yeah, he's a very interesting character. I think he's mo- he's beloved, though. I, I don't know anybody. I don't know. have any uh, I don't know any Seahawks fans that have any negative things to say about Sean Alexander other than, man, he ran to the left a lot behind two Hall of Fame offensive linemen, yeah. you know. I think it's a little bit like the Emmett Smith thing. Like when people talk about Emmett Smith now, they're like, is he the greatest running back of all time? And nobody thinks that, you know, he's probably a little underappreciated though. Cause I think a lot of people love the glitz and glamor of Barry Sanders. So Barry Sanders got some love that maybe Emmett didn't get because Emmett just ran a ball and handed the ball to the ref and he was done. Yeah. Well, Emmett played for a lot better team. Sure. There's no doubt. Particularly a lot better offensive lines. You know, I mean, if you ask the majority of uh, Americans to name three Lions players ever, <laughs> like people can name more uh, Cowboys from sure. that Emmett Smith team than in the entirety of the That's Lions true. franchise. That is a so, great point. I like Sean Alexander a lot. Yeah. Nothing so, but love there. So here's my thing with him. So we have four kids. Every kid's name, unless my wife said, I get to call it. One of our kids, she said, I get to name him, period. That's the end of the story. I'm like, okay. I guess. But for name, I had to find three reasons to like any name. So our mm-hmm. third, our, our youngest son is Alex. One of the reasons he got the name Alex was I was a big fan of Sean Alexander. So I said, there that's a great name. And my wife and I debated when we signed, when we were going to sign the birth certificate, she only wanted him to be Alex. And I wanted him to be Alexander, partly because of Sean Alexander. And I said right. on a resume, what's going to look better? Alex Patrick Pinkleton or Alexander Patrick Pinkleton. And I said Alexander, and she said, well, guess what? You're going to sign it anyway, so whatever you want. So he got Alexander, largely due, <laughs> to Sean Alexander. So That's great. I want to get to why I got interested in you. So I was interested in you because you have a church ministry background, and we'll get into your testimony in just a minute. The other thing that I really respect about you, Dustin, a lot is – it doesn't take long for someone to look at you or watch your special and say, this dude's white, period, end of story. <laughs> and you have tackled race in your comedy specials, your content. You've been able to get into talking about some race stuff like nobody's business. And I'm like, that usually doesn't happen for someone in majority culture. Do other people say that to you that they really respect and appreciate how you tackle something tough like that as a very white guy? Yeah, I think so. I think I've actually talked about it. That's an interesting thing. Like it is, I mean, I've definitely had some videos specifically like the only white comedian for an all black crowd that Mm -hmm. have gone big, big and have been some of the most viewed things that I've seen. Um, Yeah, I mean, it definitely comes up. I mean, a lot of it has been opportunistic in the sense that like I had some opportunities to perform with Kev on stage who changed my career, you know, um, Kevin Fredericks also knows Kev on stage was doing those keep your distance shows. And though I really was the token white guy on those shows, I was, the only, I wasn't the only white performer. I was the only white person in the room. And sometimes you just got to acknowledge the white elephant in the room. <laughs> and, uh, white um, elephant. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, like for me as a comedian, you just want to talk about the things that you feel and think and genuinely experience. And so all of like the race stuff that I've talked about have still all come from stories 
they're not me saying anything like white people are like this or black people are like this or in, anything like that. They're just more like, well, this is my experience. Sure. Like I had the joke about being at the BLM rally and not knowing what to do with my sign afterwards. Like, do I keep it? Yeah. I, it's not nice, but I also don't want to be seen throwing it away, yeah. you know, like, yeah. uh, uh, or the fact that my last name happens to sound like a racial slur. Yeah. Like yeah. there are, and that those are real experiences that I've had. And so it all does still come from story. And I, I think, and I hope that it's, I know in the room it's disarming because I'm not coming up and saying anything about, anything I don't know about. Mm -hmm. I'm just telling the stories and these things that how they've experienced me. And of course, speaking on behalf of white people, because I am a, a, you know, a pretty, a pretty blatant ambassador of the race of Caucasia. (laughs) Race of Caucasia. That's a great thing. So, Hey, I want to make the commonalities between me and you. So you wanted to be a sports writer. I did that for four years. You were in Mm -hmm. youth ministry for two or three years. I did it for 10 full time, 22 count volunteer time. You're now a comedian. You've been doing that for quite some time. I feel like maybe yeah. I should follow you. What do you say to that? Should I <laughs> should I take a stab at it and see if I could join you in that world or what? Listen, the good thing about comedy is there's only one way to do it, and that's just start do doing it. it. And the other good thing is you're going to know right away if you want to keep doing it. Because if you're going to do it right, you just need to show up to some comedy club's open mic night and just go for it. And it's never going to be worse than it is at the beginning. Mm. The first like year of comedy is brutal. They're just, it's so bad. You're like, first time I did comedy, I performed for five people. I did three minutes. And that was one of the better open mics I would see for a while. I mean, you're sometimes up there performing for no people. Like you're just going through the motions and maybe trying to make the comedians in the back of the room laugh. Like it's so bad, so early. And if you don't do it that way, then you won't be any good. Like you have to go the hard route on on stand-up. So yeah, more power to you if you want to give it a try. But uh, the good news is you'll know right away. <laughs> do you, do you have, uh, so I just saw a comedian who I know you would probably know him if I said him and you know, I know he's done some bigger stuff. He's done some smaller stuff. And you think about this a lot of, of in the world of music. I watched the two different documentaries. I don't know what this says about me on uh was it Amazon or Netflix about the Jonas brothers. And at the, one, the end of the one, they went back after they're playing all these big arena shows and they end up in one of the first places they ever played in Chicago. That was like a bar, super small. Is there, I mean, I hear people say there's not a big difference between playing big theater versus small club, smaller crowd, whatever. You just have to kind of get pumped up and psyched for whoever's there. Is that always true though? Don't you sometimes say like, come on, man, I expected this to be bigger or wow, this is way bigger than I thought or. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a difference in crowds, crowd size and venue. A lot of it has to do with venue and the experience, but I mean, it's easier for there to be good energy with, it's not so much about how many people are there. It's how many people are there and what's the size of the room. Mm-hmm. Like I've played, I've played some crowds of, you know, of 40 seaters that are full that feel better than a sold out Radio City music hall because it's at a certain point, a room becomes too big for stand up. Mm. Ultimately, you're trying to make a connection with people. And the more people they are, the harder it is to kind of get them all together. And the further away they are, the harder it can be. Yeah. So, I mean, comedy in its like, its rawest, like most like on edge form is 
low ceilings, dark lit, underground or downtown, like, you know, like people are drinking. It's kind of like a chaotic, like that's, those are, those are comedy clubs. Like that, that was built to be the front line of stand-up comedy. And that is the kind of the highest energy version of it that, like, for example, we were with, I was with Taylor Tomlinson at the Ryman a couple of weeks ago. And the Ryman is probably my favorite venue oh, in the God. world. And we said, we got off stage and we go, that feels like a club. So what we're wow. saying is all those theaters are trying to get back to comedy club energy. Mm. Because that is, comedy club is the best version of stand-up comedy, yeah. you know, at least for the performer. I think for the consumer, they don't feel it as much as we do up there. So they they'll go to like a big venue and feel like maybe they, they might even enjoy it more because it's a little nicer, a little classier <laughs> than a lot of these comedy clubs are, or it's an environment they're more comfortable in than a comedy club. Cause I know a lot of people don't go to comedy clubs, but uh, for the, the comic itself, I don't know any comic whose favorite places to perform isn't aren't comedy clubs, sure. but you know, as, as certain acts get bigger, they'll, you know, they'll kind of, those comedy clubs can't contain them yeah. anymore, but not no even close to there yet. But sure. after this podcast, I am, baby. <laughs> Let's go, man. Let's make that happen. We're going to get big in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Let me let me say this. So you mentioned a rhyme and my heart just skipped a beat because I'm going there in two weeks for a concert. But um, oh, nice. did you see the, was it Netflix or Amazon Prime? There was that special and he hadn't done comedy supposedly in eons, but um, Ray Romano did a thing where he went back to where he got his start and he did like, was it two or three comedy clubs? Like he left the one, walked to the other, and then maybe walked to another and did it. And he looked like he was having a blast. Yeah. So that's the comedy cellar in New York there. And then the, you know, the comedy cellar has the three different rooms there all in East village. And like, they, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, what, I mean, Ron, Romano's done, Carnegie Hall and the Beacon and 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 Radio City. He's done every big venue you can. He probably did MSG like, and then he's but at this stage of his career, he's like, ah, just take me back to the comedy club. Yeah, because Romano knows, you know, like that's 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 kind of like com comedy's having this big ma like mainstream moment right now. It's like very big. Oh, like yeah. number one watch thing on Netflix right now is Matt Wright special. Like, whoops, sorry, don't mind me. Like comedy is having a big moment right now. And so you see these comedians playing like arenas and and stadiums and you're like, that's doesn't happen. That's yeah. unheard. Like uh, and and the venues that we traditionally have played have been those types that that Romano played in those venues. That's where yeah. he got good. That's when he learned how to do it. And and your goal as a comedian when you first started was just to play those comedy clubs, not to get to like arenas and stadiums sure. and stuff, but it is so mass consumed right now that, uh, you know, we're really like people are just moving crazy ticket numbers. Like you can grab a like 10th to 15th, 20th highest selling comedian right now. And they're moving numbers like Eddie Murphy did in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Like there's crazy how yeah. big comedy is right now. Well, it's just such a blast. I mean, I think it's for me as a follower of Jesus and doing a men's ministry where we, you know, we just took 21 people to the funny bone that you're going to be at in, in Liberty Township. And to do a, a mass group outing, as much as I love concerts and sporting events, there's something about comedy, laughing together, hitting your knee, looking at someone else sitting by you. You're in such close quarters. So you mentioned Taylor Tomlinson. Okay, so mm -hmm. she just got the gig following, taking the place of uh, Corden's yeah, old Gordon. spot. I, yeah. I told a friend of mine, I said, can you imagine her career 
just exploded. Like when she goes back out on tour, her dollar price, her venues are probably going up. She's got that great spot after Stephen Colbert. I mean, did mm-hmm. her career just blow up like I think it did? I mean, it, it was already big. I mean, she'd done, I think she was the fourth highest grossing comedy tour in the country this last year. Like she, or I don't remember if it was four, it's definitely top 10. And, you know, she sold out two radio cities. She's selling out everywhere she goes. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think her her profile definitely went up more so because you're going to be on TV five nights a week and you're going to be getting the Colbert push and the CBS push. So, but, you know, I, I was an open micer with Taylor. Taylor was, I mean, she was inevitable. We, I mean, really? My wife said about, about Taylor, like everybody remembers the first time they saw Taylor Tomlinson. Really? They're like, you are the complete package and all and have every skill that a comedian can have. Yeah. Crowd work writing material, performance, you know, everything there is to have in stand-up comedy, she has it. And so I wasn't even surprised when she got it. Yeah, "Yeah, of course. So I just thought of a great joke. Can you imagine like the the middle-aged mom right now who loves her daughter, who's like cheerleader or plays sports for the high school team and said, hey, I just bought tickets for you and your friends on such and such date. We're going to go see Taylor Pause. They're thinking Swift. They're all. Ex- We're going to go see Taylor Tomlinson. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Did it make- uh, you know, I think a lot, I think there's going to be a lot of crossover of people who go uh, who are Swifties are also big Taylor Tomlinson fans. So maybe they're not quite as excited, but I think they're going to be pretty excited. And their mom is going to be excited about how much cheaper the tickets were. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But can you imagine? So our senior pastor, his wife and daughters just got four tickets to see. Taylor Swift, when she comes around, I think it's next fall. And he's like, mm-hmm. now, you know, we could sell those tickets and our whole family of six could go on a vacation to Hawaii. And no yeah. joke, that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Taylor Tomlinson will have the same thing. Maybe. Yeah, and the kid is like, I would rather go to Taylor don't Swift. You dare. <laughs> don't you dare. You think I want to go to Hawaii with my parents? <laughs> that's right. I'm teeing up some good. I can't be do the comedy, but I'm teeing you up for some good jokes right now. See, there you go. You've, you've I'm come up with the That's half the battle. Yeah, I'm writing for you. <laughs> so, hey, right. let, let's get I'll a give little, you credit in the next special. Please do that. So, Dustin, give us a little uh, background here. Tell us your little faith journey. Give us a few minutes of uh, your faith story. Sure. Man, I'm trying to remember the last time I shared a testimony. This is, uh, this is giving me flashbacks. <laughs> was it Dadville or was it Matthew West or somebody like oh, that had I, you on? You did it with one yeah, of those. Yeah, maybe those. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time I did it. Mine's definitely different. I mean, I like I I know really intersection with faith or Christianity or God until like high school and like kind of like eighth, ninth grade, ninth, ninth, about freshman year. And it was really kind of like a simple process for me in that, you know, I had an older friend who we skated together and he like he was actually friends with my sister he was older and he had a car and when you have a car and you can skate that to make you can go to so many places and so we became friends Micah and I and uh, you kind of bury in the lead when you mention that their name is Micah because you, you know there's a church invite coming soon mm-hmm. uh and yeah. Mike uh, invited me. There was this thing in Portland came out came out of Portland in the night the '90s called Skate Church, and it was really just a skate ministry. Wow! And they would go and do these kind of like demo rally type things where someone would then share 
their testimony or the a gospel presentation or something at the end of that. And they did one of those in South Seattle where I'm from and where I lived at the time. And it just kind of, the guy jumped through a ring of fire, gave his testimony. It was very, uh, little, it was a little Jesus-y. It was a little Johnny Cashy. It, it had <laughs> a lot of the, uh, a lot of the elements that I signed off with. And I was like, okay, I'm in R- really what it was for a lot of me is I was drawn to the people of mm-hmm. faith at the time and people who were, I felt like a sense of like belonging, a lack of judgment, you know, because like any, you know, high school and teenage years are such vulnerable years where you're trying to find a place where people will kind of accept you for being you. And I was very fortunate that I like the faith community that I landed in had that. And it kind of opened my heart to hearing the teachings of Christianity and, and the Bible, because I know a lot of people have had the complete opposite experience sure. with church. You know, they're like, these are the judgiest people I've ever met. And I've also had that experience. And I've also been that judgy person before. So I admit that uh, I, I was very fortunate in that. And then, yeah, just kind of stuck around. It's, you know, sometimes that happens with faith stuff that you're just like, oh, I don't, this wasn't necessarily like a decision. It was like, well, these are my friends now. These are my people now. This is this is kind of my group now. This is, you know, these truths, these teachings, this belief, this community. It all kind of becomes a bit who you are, you know. So that's that's how I landed kind of in church settings in the in the first place. But yeah, I mean, I was not raised in it, didn't grow up going to church, still didn't have any family that has ever gone to church, you know. It's uh that's the that's the world that I knew. You mentioned, and it's one thing coming from you versus if it was coming from me, about kind of this explosiveness that's going on in comedy right now. And I think it seems as a consumer, it seems very accurate that comedy is just kind of exploding. It feels mm-hmm. to me within that, and let me know what you think, that Jesus coming into comedy, like you're hearing this, I mean, you're seeing people that and I hate this term, but with a Christian comedian tag attached to him is gaining popularity. People are talking about faith related things about the church, about whatever in comedy, you know, the Nate Bargatze's the world, Angela Johnson Reyes. I mean, many others I could list. If, if we talk about the gospel and say the message doesn't change, but the methods do, do you think God's maybe doing something with that as a method to say, Hey, I'm going to let people know who I am through comedy right now. Yeah. I mean, maybe I think uh, something that they, comedy is, in this boom right now, which is nice because it's it's getting much more like music and then there's just genres. So whatever genre of comedy you like exists. So if you want a clean comic, then you can get it. If you want a church comic, like which is even kind of a step further than what you're talking about with Nate or Angela, who like performs exclusively and churches and talks a lot about church environments and stuff, then that exist as well if you want a dirty if you want a deadpan comic if you want uh music comic like there is there's lots of different genres of comedy because ultimately what comedy is is someone talking about their experiences in the world Mm -hmm. and only only deal with comedy is that like the only agreement is that it has to be funny like you can talk about whatever you want up there whatever you want provided that you make it funny so but wouldn't you say yeah. it's got to be true as well, though? It doesn't have to be honest as no, well. You don't no, think so? You think you could just go through and make all. up a bunch of crap? No, because people are characters. People make no, up stories true. all together. Yeah, it doesn't have to be 
uh it has to be funny it's as funny as the only agreement but do you, you know? do you being who you are and i think honest fair this is my life comedy like you said with even the racial stuff does that kind of turn you off if you know someone's up there just making stuff and being bogus and it's not legit at all do you kind of lack a little respect for that type of comedy i uh, i respect all comics you know to stand up there and do comedy is like is like we were talking about like earlier like the mechanics of like of like the travel and stuff like that's not hard actually doing stand-up is very hard that's mm-hmm. why very few people do it yeah. it's it's americans number one fear is yeah. public speaking and then stand-up comedy is probably the most intense version of public speaking which is like make me laugh go dance joke monkey dance like that is it's a it's quite a there's a real pressure and fear that like the audience has and you have and what's going to happen. So, but, uh, you know, I, I think what you're saying is, and I didn't mean to shut you down that fast. What you're saying is like, there has to be an honesty. It has to resonate with people in some way. Mm-hmm. There has to be like tie in with some sense of feeling that they have, whether it's like an Anthony Jeselnik, who is just a total character, nothing that he says in his act is true, but there's like a darkness to him that I think people sure. almost identify like, Oh, I've had thoughts like that. <laughs> or, or they're laughing at like, they said the darkest, most outrageous, preposterously offensive thing in the world. But I am identifying that there is a part of me that likes that. Sure. <laughs> sure. I, I do think that what you're saying, there is some sense of truth into that. I like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not one to like bad mouth comics, but like there are, Ultimately, you just have to do what you want yeah, to do. Be fair to yourself. Like, do the work that you want to do. And yeah. as long as you are, Rick Rubin said this recently. Rick Rubin's the legendary yeah. uh, producer. Mm-hmm. He's, I don't, as far as I know, he's, I don't, I don't know what his beliefs are, but he said, ultimately, like making any piece of like art is an offering to God. Mm. You're just kind of, it's not really about how it's consumed. It's more about what you're going through and what you're trying to make and then just kind of presenting it. Yeah. And I like that because sure. I do think that there is really something to that because how people respond and take this from somebody who spends way too much time in his comment section, how people respond, <laughs> you cannot expect and control people can take and, and like you Anytime you make something, you are subjecting yourself to misinterpretation. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. People are going to misread a race joke, a political joke, a joke about your family. Mel and I posted a pod clip the other day. It was called like a salute to one child parents. And we were joking about how like, you know, like, oh, you need one child parents in your life because they're not overwhelmed and they can take notes and they can go to the meetings. And then, you know, half the comments are like, how dare you say this? I... I have one child. I'm overwhelmed. I am a single. And you're like, all right, you're going to people are going to receive this the way that they receive it. Like, I cannot control that. And but what I can control is like, yeah, this is a thing that I'm making. And ultimately, you're kind of like offering up and then offering out as well. So you hope that people receive it. But ultimately, you can't you cannot control it. Yeah. I love what you said when you were talking about public speaking. I love the old Seinfeld bit about if you go to a funeral where number one fear is public speaking number two's death. So if you're at a yeah, funeral, yeah. you prefer to be the guy in the casket, not the guy giving a eulogy. Hilarious. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, and it's absolutely true. Yeah, people are really, really get crippling scared. And I think that that's part of the reason that it's so exhilarating to see because you, you when you see it live, you're just like, yeah. Seinfeld talked about this in an interview where he said like, you're, 
you're kind of quelling their fears right away when you're good. They're like, oh, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Oh, she knows what you're doing. They know what they're like. They can, everybody can relax now. Sure. And or when something like weird, like there's a heckler or something bizarre happens, everybody gets tense first. And then they kind of look to the comedian to like handle it. Yeah. So it is an interesting, like live kind of experience. Oh, sure. So you're much, he- more music, much different than music. Uh, in that way. See, it's interesting because I, I tie those two a lot. So I, I'd love to unpack that with you more. Maybe that's for our next podcast, but we got to let people know. So you are a huge, huge fan of all things, Seattle, all things, yeah. Washington, two questions for you. What are the best uniforms? Cause that area of the country has some great uniforms, past, present, mm-hmm. Sonics included Sounders, Seahawks, Washington Huskies, whatever. And who's your Mount Rushmore of athletes? from there yeah yeah so what was the first question what are the best uniforms best uniforms of all time your neck of the woods from where your homeland is hmm i mean they've been doing the they just brought back the like 90 seattle kind of retro ones with the silver helmets the royal blue jersey mm, ken griffey yeah i i i have some like ptsd with those uniforms because it's like we are those are bad years for us. <laughs> mm. Like I did not love seeing those back on the field. <laughs> there was no part of me that was like, Oh man, I'm so excited to see these uniforms <laughs> out here. So, I mean, it is hard to beat. Sonics. Uh, Come on. The Sonics with Sean Kemp Sonics, and Detlef. And- but for, yeah, before they went to the, they had those like weird, darker forest green maroon ones that with I did. Like. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I didn't like those ones, but the green and yellow, your kind of classic green and yellow. The word Sonic across uh, or Seattle yeah, across. Yeah, yeah, those are great. And then probably just, I mean, listen, I'm a Huskies fan. Probably just the, the I love a purple jersey and a gold helmet. Like, yeah. it's very specific to them. And it's the only Northwest team there that has a different color scheme because yeah. it's college. So it's the teal, it's the teal Mariners jersey. That's my very okay. favorite. That was our oh so good i love it so much what about the fully lime green seattle seahawk ones not a fan don't don't love that color uh people I don't love, love it or hate it yeah i don't love any of those like those jersey what are they called what do they call them the uh the um my son would know he's a huge nfl fan yeah i know which one yeah they yeah, you know, whether like the Broncos ones are the all orange, yeah. bright, the neon bright colors or whatever. I don't love any of those. And the Seahawks ones are particularly tough to look at. Yeah. So who's on your Mount, Mount Rushmore yeah. Seattle athletes, though? Best or favorite? Uh, however you want to answer the question. It's your question. You answer how you want. Okay. Well, I'll just say favorite of athletes because, I mean, the best is actually pretty obvious. You know, it's going to be Griffey and, you know, each hero, depending on what sport, you know. Gary Payton, like it's actually pretty short. Well, I guess it's harder now that I think about it. Uh, I'm going to go Dell Ellis because I love Tennessee. Dell so. Ellis, baby. There yeah. you go. Um, favorite as far as like, oh, gosh, I mean, Ichiro is yeah. beloved and was the only bright spot for a tough team for a long time. I loved Detlef Shrimp so much. And Jay Buhner, I'm probably going to go Detlef, Buhner, Ichiro. What sport am I for? Steve Largent. Not- Steve Largent. Yeah, Largent was way before my era. Yeah. So I can't, I, I don't, I didn't cheer for him a lot. But, oh, and Marshawn Lynch. Of course, Marshawn Lynch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, every, which is so funny because he was great. Big Marshawn fan. 
but he was not like some Barry Sanders 10 year dominant back for yeah. us. He just had a couple big iconic runs and was is the just bleeds charisma. So yeah, Sad Marshawn Lynch for sure. I don't know that he'd make it on the top four best ever though. Sure, so that's where he. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. You just know. ticked off uh, Richard Sherman. He's gonna call you up. Sherman's great. Sherman's great, but he also went to the Niners abruptly in the middle of his career. He's kind of come back. He's a lot more like he's kind of like this outspoken Seahawks advocate now, which yeah. is pretty funny. So yeah, he's making his way in the media world for sure. Richard Sherman. Yeah. Well, I mean, currently it's Julio. I mean, everybody loves Julio right now. He's his absolutely beloved figure. So yeah, it's uh, you know, for a, a city that has only won two championships in 50 years, uh, well more, if you count the Sounders, um, and, and even more, if you count the storm, like, uh, but I should say of major men's championships that only won the two pretty memorable iconic players yeah <laughs> so does i want to get back to the learning side of you because i love i love I'm, i consider myself a lifelong learner and one of my heroes is john wooden who just constantly was putting himself in learning postures what do you how do you you, you talked about i saw a quote by you you said your first time you alluded to it you did stand up you, you spoke for three to five minutes you got two laughs you realized you found your thing and then you picked the brain's of comedians for two hours. What are you doing now? You've established yourself enough that you're saying, man, I'm working hard to really ramp it up to the next, whatever that percentage mark up would be to take your game to the next level, whether that's ticket sales, whether that's content, whatever that is, what are you most working on to get better right now? Yeah. I mean, ultimately the, the act is what you're always working on the most. So I, you know, I have like Nate's like a, mentor towards to me in so many ways like i i tell nate all the time like uh i've everything you've ever told me about comedy has been right everything mm. has been right but i do find it's not just like creatively it's it's actually more so i i'm coming to him with like career questions because the stakes the type of questions that you're asking there's no college degree on comedy there's no book there's no like this is how you do this, this is, this is how you make this decision. And, you know, you, there's, you take a lot of lumps in comedy, like you, at least in my career, there have been way more rejections, way more losses than there have been wins. And it's not even close, like no to this festival, no to this booking, no to this gig. No, you can't do this. Like the amount of turndowns and non-responses you get is far outweighs the yeses, you know? Mm. And I think that's true of a lot of careers. So I'm I'm always trying to learn from like comedians whose careers I respect and would love sure. that trajectory. But like with a guy like Nate right now, are you asking more questions about purely the comedy side and getting better that way? Or how much are you saying like, okay, now that you're doing this, how are you taking that income or what you're doing with your family and think about your daughter's college or how are you doing it and thinking about right. retirement and those type of things? I'm I'm asking very little comedy questions, very little creative questions, because everything that I, I want to know from comedians about that, I can just watch on stage. Mm -hmm. I can watch what they're doing. I know enough now sure. to know what they're doing up there. So Nate, I, the time that I get with Nate, the phone calls that I get with Nate, the texts that I have with Nate are all very, what do you think about me doing this? Should I take this job? Should I do this? What do you think about that? Like, very, you know, and, and I mean, there's just no one that I would respect more mm -hmm. to advise on those things than Nate. And so we texted earlier this week and I told him about a thing that I did and he was like, this is great. Just keep doing what you're doing. Stuff That's like so that. Cool. Where you're like, 
It's great because Nate's ten years ahead of me. Nate, not not in age. He's he's been four or five years older than me, but like he's he's ten years. And his big break came in 2017. So like six years ago, he and he had had a bunch of stuff. He'd had Tonight Shows. He had had a Comedy Central Presents, all that kind of stuff. But it was his Netflix half hour that really launched him. And to think about where he's at now, where he was in clubs six years ago, yeah. you know, um, that he there, there's just a lot that I can kind of glean from there creatively. I, there's just comedians that I respect that I watch their work a lot. And I just, you go like, like I'm reading Maria Bamford's book right now. Like, yes, I'll join your Colts. And there's a quote on the front from it called uh, by Patton Oswalt that says like Maria Bamford makes you want to think deeper and, and write better. And that's, that's exactly it where sometimes I'll watch comedians and be like, I can't believe that they got a laugh out of that, that story that truth that topic and that's the stuff that i'm like very creatively interested in doing like there's like i have a whole there's just there's ideas that you have and you go like okay how can those are the, that's the thing that i care the most about yeah but how can i start making it funny sure like and not just writing funny bits like a good example is i used to do a bit about there being no white guys in the nba my son wanted to go to the nba you know, and I was like, sorry, guys, there's nobody that like looks like us in the NBA. And that's like a very writable bit. Like, you know, what about John Stockton? What was he great? Passing to the black guys. That's right. Great bit. Easy bit. Not it's not easy. There's no there's no comedy that's easy, but it's a good bit. And but like that's not like that's a good example of like a bit that I wrote early on in comedy where I'm like, this is funny. It's not necessarily something I care a lot about, but it is funny. And now you kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, what do I really care about? Mm. And how can I start to make that funny? Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you, when you, when you and Nate do your texting and all that, that he gave you the green light to be on his podcast. That That's encouraging to me that when you asked his advice. I told him, I, ref, I absolutely, I shouldn't do that. No way I'm doing that. And he's like, you have to, yeah. you absolutely have to. College so, game day, picking the game in Alabama or being on the mm -hmm. Pickleton pool side, he gave you the green I'm light. I'm glad he picked UW. I would have felt so betrayed had he not picked UW. Ooh, I was like, you know true. one person that went to UW. That's right. And you know what? There's not a lot of comedians that went to college period so <laughs> that is a great line i'm one that. of the few yeah. so you better pick our team that's right let me ask you this so i have these rapid five questions and we're heading to an end so these are just five quick fast hitting questions for you to give us a a quick response on what is your favorite dustin childhood snack or cereal oh honey bunches of oats wow you didn't hesitate at all there no. you do you still no. eat it today I can't. I would love to, but I would go into diabetic shock. <laughs> what is your favorite book, not your own, that you most like to gift to other people or would gift to other people? I know you gave these to me in advance, okay. but I didn't I didn't think through answers on all of them. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have never gifted someone a book. Not one time. What would you <laughs> gift them, though? Just say the Bible. That's easy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's such a hacky answer. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Johnny Cash's autobiography. Oh, really? I love it. Cash. So good. I love it so much. How many pages? So it's a, lot? a thick book. Yeah. But it, it feels like Johnny's telling it to you. Oh, so really? I was Cash's autobiography. You know where I've gotten infatuated with Johnny Cash in the last year? I didn't realize he did a cover of the song Hurt. And usually when oh you cover God, a song, yeah. it's not as good. His version of Hurt... Oh yeah. my goodness. Trent, Trent Reznor said like, it's not my song anymore. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh, you know, he just it was like it was like, oh, this is actually somebody who's lived these lyrics a little more. Yeah. That, so. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not a big fan, like I said, of remakes. I've just, I've recently, I told my wife we were going to Georgia last week. I've really gotten on a kick of this Luke Combs fast car version. I'm like, dang. Oh, yeah. Can yeah. somebody mess with Tracy Chapman? But I think he did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what a, what a surprise. I wonder why she didn't show up to the CMAs. So. Yeah, there, yeah, a lot of people did. Next question. So you're traveling with your family. You're out doing gigs. Obviously, you're on the West Coast, so you know about all three of these places. And Team Nickerson gets the opportunity to stop at either McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, or In-N-Out Burger. Where are you going? Oh, In-N-Out. I mean, we did it last night on our way home from Universal Studios. We drove back last night, and we had an option to go to all three. Yeah, we're we are in it. We are like an in and out family. All due respect to the other two, but in and out is the go to in SoCal. If for no other reason that it's forty dollars cheaper than Chick Fil A. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, if your friend Nate Bargatze was on here, we know we know which one of these places he's going to. McDonald's for it, that guy all day long. Yeah, it's everybody yeah, else's I, last place. Yeah, I like all three, but I would. Yeah, I would. I taking a family out to Chick Fil A. Like I know. <laughs> It's so expensive. Yeah. It's not a Chick Fil A is not a cheap restaurant. Got to use the app and get those points. There's no doubt. So, <laughs> Dustin, what movie gets you and pulls you in every time you were to stumble across it? You know, I have like a really guilty spot for bad movies, like just in, like actual like cheesy movies that okay. are not great movies. But they're they're fine movies. Like there's listen, there's a million great movies out there that I'll watch all the time. Well, I love to get in a hotel and see what random movies on and like, uh, like draft day draft day oh, is a terrible, movie, yeah. but I love it. I love that terrible movie so much or like gone in 60 seconds. That is a terrible movie and I love it. Yeah. So I like, a I like a cheesy, unbelievable, bad acted movie, but for whatever reason, it just, it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I shouldn't use those words because there's obviously part of me that likes it. But I've said Draft Day is the worst movie that I'll watch every day <laughs> if it's on right now, particularly the last like 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Dustin, how old are you again? I'm 39. Oh, you're way too young. Have you, you've never by chance seen the Patrick Dempsey movie, Can't Buy Me Love? Mm mm. <sighs> I wish you were a little bit older and it's seen because that movie, I'd, I'd be very curious what you think. Okay. I think it's one of the most underrated best movies ever about high. You did, you did youth ministry for a few years. So if thinking youth ministry and high school kids, this is like the movie. So the most important question I ask here is who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, Sarah Michelle Geller. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Buffy. Yeah. Followed shortly right around the, uh, I guess actually chronologically it would have been pretty close time-wise. Sarah Michelle Gellar and, Quest and Gwen Stefani. Not current voice Gwen Stefani. No doubt rocker Gwen Stefani. There you go. Yeah, that was my one too. So you're ready to duke it out with Blake Shelton. You and Blake are ready to duke it out, huh? You know, I'm happy with Melissa. There you go. That's good. Because <laughs> she's funny. She, here's the thing. Gwen Stefani can't be as funny probably as Melissa, right? Probably not. No, I don't. Gwen Stefani is... It's not very funny. She did uh, have some bangers and she helped us all learn how to spell bananas. There you go. Hey, uh, last question for you. And people won't be able to see this because this, I'm seeing you on video. You have a shirt on with big letters, hope. Yeah. What does Dustin Nickerson have great hope in right now? Oh, uh, well, first off, I'll give a shout out to Hope Heals. That's what this is. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, we're we're at pretty actively. Uh, I don't know if you know Jane Catherine Wolf. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, we're uh, we're involved in the Hope Hills community and go down there every summer. Our family awesome. involves our camp and everything. So great stuff. Love Jane Catherine a lot. Um, what gives me hope beyond that? Hmm, it's a great question. Hmm. Let me. Th- I want to. I want to give a, a genuine, hopeful answer to that. I, I. You know, I did like a. I did a very silly video on uh, on why I'm rooting for Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, uh, <laughs> and it because I found in my like middle age and like and been in a relationship for a long time that I'm very like uh, just hopeful that people will become less jaded and more optimistic and rooting for people's joy in this world and not like rooting for people's yeah, downfall. That's true. That being said, there's a million people that I'm rooting for their downfall, mostly politicians of both <laughs> parties. Uh, yes. But I say to my kids a lot that, Criticism and negativity are lazy and uh, and uninteresting. Like to be negative and to complain and to criticize is just the easiest thing in the world. And so I'm hopeful that people will dig a little deeper and just either and find more hope and joy and positivity to speak about. Speak life. Yeah, well, um, life is very hard and life will tell you when it's time to be serious. And I hate being serious. I hate, (laughs) I hate seriousness with everything. I think there's an old Chesterton quote where he talks about, there's no, there's no virtue in seriousness. Mm. Like it really isn't like, and in faith circles, everyone's so serious and I hate it so much. Like, I don't know why we've like, we've deemed like being serious is important. So I, I hope that people are, are happier and less serious and also less critical and more uh, joyful and hopeful and optimistic, yeah. all of those things. I love that you mentioned Jay and Catherine, because I read that first book that they wrote about her situation, and she's went yeah. through some very, very difficult physical stuff, and that that book, and then there's, what, one or two books to follow that or whatever, and I know they're going around now and speaking. It's powerful stuff, so that yeah. says a lot about you that you're in connection and community with them on whatever level. So, Dustin, where can people get and find out more about you and what's going on? Yeah, I'm just DustinNickerson.com. That's going to have tour dates, social media, book links, special, all that kind of stuff is all all on the old website. December 10th, Liberty Township, north of Cincinnati. December 13th, join me and some other gathering fellas at the Easton Funny Bone in Columbus. And then you're going to be in Pittsburgh for the next three nights. And then coming back to Dayton, Ohio at Southbrook Church on Mm -hmm. February 16th. Lots of good opportunities to experience the humor and life of Dustin Nickerson. Thanks for joining us, Dustin. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.